This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The legal question before the Supreme Court was fairly prosaic. Could a U.S. corporation be sued by foreigners under a centuries-old law for aiding and abetting actions overseas? But the facts of the case were extraordinary and horrifying. A suit by six former child slaves who were kidnapped from their native Mali and forced to work 14-hour days on cocoa farms on the Ivory Coast, where they say they were starved, beaten, and tortured. Their suit against Nestle's and Cargill accuses the chocolate companies of complicity in their enslavement by giving the farmers financial assistance to maintain a supply of cheap cocoa. Nestle's lawyer, Neil Katyal, faced some tough questions. Here are Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Samuel Alito. Could you set aside for me why you think international law, there's not an international law against aiding and abetting something as heinous as child slavery? Mr. Katyal, many of your arguments lead to results that are pretty hard to take. And Justice Elena Kagan grilled Katyal about his theory that no corporation can be sued under the alien tort statute. Could this uh, same ch- former child slave under the same circumstances bring a suit against 10 slaveholders? Uh, you know, if they if they met the you know the requirements under the, the law, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, if they if there was okay, so if, if, if you could bring a suit against ten slaveholders, when those ten slaveholders form a corporation, why can't you bring a suit against the corporation? Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. How the Alien Tort Statute was a favorite tool of human rights advocates to sue for overseas atrocities until the Roberts Court started scaling it back. What's left of it? It's unclear. What the court has said is that if there is a action that's closely tied to the United States that violates all international decency, then at least an individual who has committed that claim, whether it's piracy or slavery or assassination, may be hauled into court in the United States to second-guess that behavior. But what has been surprising is that the court has suggested that this alien tort statute has to have a close connection to the United States. And that's not at all what it seems like on its face. And it's not what it seems like if you look at the scant historical precedents that exist. So this is really a retooling of the statute to use as a safety valve for when the U.S. individual has created some kind of atrocities abroad. So how has the Supreme Court treated corporations under the statute? The Supreme Court recently has cut back the scope of the Alien Tort Statute by ruling that foreign corporations could not be sued. The case arose because of a challenge to a Jordanian bank, which allegedly had given funds to Palestinian terrorists, which injured U.S. citizens. There, the court said that foreign corporations cannot be hailed in as defendants for a couple of reasons. One is because of the history that most criminal statutes and treaties against torture have focused on individuals as opposed to corporations, and also because of the fear of entangling the U.S. in some kind of disputes with foreign governments to the extent that foreign corporations can be sued here. So one of the issues in the case involving Nestle is whether domestic corporations such as Nestle and Cargill can be sued under the Alien Tort Statute, and the answer is unclear. Nestle's lawyer wanted the justices to give U.S. corporations a shield against lawsuits under the Alien Tort Statute. That's a big ask, isn't it? Yeah, so there are really 
three sets of arguments that are at play for the Supreme Court. The one that we've been discussing is whether any corporation can be sued under the Alien Tort Statute at all. And obviously, corporations can violate the law of nations just as much as individuals can. So there is a definite issue with respect to the scope of the Alien Tort Statute in that respect. Another one is what kind of connection the conduct has to have to the United States. Because what Nestle has argued here is that, you know, if there's enslavement, if there's forced labor, that's taking place in Ivory Coast. It's not taking place in the United States. And so they're refashioning the Alien Tort Statute to really focus on conduct that's more directly committed by United States citizens. And that doesn't seem to resonate with (laughs) the language of the Alien Tort Statute at all. And of course, the plaintiffs in the case say, look, Nestle's and Cargill approved of the conduct, aided and abetted from the United States shores because they're housed here. And so therefore, they should be subject to the Alien Tort Statute. Third is the one that I think is where the Supreme Court might go. The question is, what kind of conduct or tort is against the law of nations? Clearly, slavery is. Clearly, aiding and abetting slavery substantially is. But what the plaintiffs have not done is to show what kind of mens rea or mindset is required before someone can said to have violated the law of nations with respect to slavery. Is it that Nestle was negligent? Is the question that whether Nestle was willfully blind or did Nestle actually have to know that it was purchasing chocolate because of the fruits of child labor? The plaintiffs have not been very careful to ascertain what actually the accusations are in the case. And it may be that the court has an out here by holding that, yes, slavery is against the law of nations. And yes, even aiding and abetting slavery is against law of nations. But at a minimum, the allegations must include some evidence of complicity in terms of knowledge that the child labor or slavery was going on. And the plaintiffs have been pretty quiet with respect to that kind of evidence. This court has given corporations the rights of individuals. So why wouldn't you be able to sue a corporation if you can sue an individual? Well, there's no textual basis for that distinction. However, corporations were not recognized in terms of as political actors or as legal actors back in 1789 when the statute was created. So there is some kind of reason to be historically skeptical whether Congress intended to include corporations. And it's also true that in terms of modern international criminal tribunals, corporations largely have been excluded. So the argument is both there's a little bit of history and a little bit of modern international custom, which suggests that individuals should be treated differently than corporations. Of course, from the perspective of harm, there is no difference whatsoever whether a corporation enslaves an individual as opposed to another individual. And some of the conservative justices even seem reluctant to completely exempt U.S. companies. I mean, the court could go there. I would be surprised if the court took the ask from the U.S. Department of Justice, which supported Netflix in this regard. There has been a lot of concern about corporations doing business with suppliers who are not comporting with international standards for human rights. And the question here was one of aiding and abetting. And Justice Breyer worried about setting a worldwide precedent by concluding that international law covers aiding and abetting. Slavery is an abomination, and we all have consensus that international law condemns slavery. 
But as you go down the chain of actors, it becomes more and more remote. So if someone suspects that the product has been made in part due to enslaved labor, are they also complicit? And they're complicit in some moral sense, but are they complicit in the sense of violating an international norm if they just have reason to believe that some of the chocolate they're using was farmed with the benefit of forced labor? What if they're the shipping company who just helps ship that chocolate? Maybe they know as well that some of the chocolate was farmed with the help of forced labor, and they're just collecting normal charges. Are they also aiding and abetting because they're shipping the chocolate? So as you go down the line of production, the question is, is it really fair to say that everybody who may be morally responsible for having some basis of knowledge of this forced labor really have violated a international standard, this sort of rare core of international standards of misconduct because of that knowledge. Overhanging this whole argument is that there's a lot of evidence that the world's chocolate supply depends heavily on child labor. So is it in the back of some of the justices' minds how it will look if they come out with a decision that lets the chocolate companies off the hook? Well, I think the issue cuts both ways in the sense of the sort of understanding that there has been child labor involved in the chocolate industry because there have been diplomatic channels and diplomatic overtures to try to limit the use of forced labor in the production of cocoa. And so... Some justices may say that recognizing this kind of aiding and abetting cause of action may undermine those diplomatic efforts or maybe even counterproductive. So uh, on the one hand, um, as you state, the the court may be wary of trying to turn its back on, on very serious allegations of misconduct. But on the other hand, there has been a recognition that this has been a systemic problem in the chocolate industry, and there have been diplomatic missions and efforts to try to limit it so that the court might be on safe ground saying that recognizing a cause of action here might undermine the diplomacy. The chief justice did say that unlike previous cases involving non-U.S. corporations, no foreign government had interfered here. No foreign government had objected here. So something he's thinking about. Yeah, no, and it's true. I mean, one of the, the ticklish parts about allowing any kind of these international suits to be brought in the United States is the interruption of foreign affairs. But in this case, as the Chief Justice pointed out, there has been no sign that Ivory Coast or Mali is worried about this lawsuit. In fact, they may favor the lawsuit continuing on its merry way because of the injustices that have arisen. In another context, the lawsuit can have foreign affairs repercussions, and that's what the Department of Justice argued in papers to the court, suggesting that the court go very slow in recognizing these cause of actions, because according to the Department of Justice, one never knows when these private lawsuits will disrupt foreign relations. And the third argument about mens rea, how does that come out? In my view, I think that the plaintiffs are on shaky ground here because they've never stated what is the sort of relevant mens rea with respect to Nestle's. Did Nestle's know that there was slavery? Did they just turn the blind eye to what was going on? Were they just negligent in not asking the right questions? And this does not suggest that Nestle should be off the hook in some moral sense. But if you recognize just a few acts of terror that shock the conscience, you know, piracy, murder, rape, 
interference with safe conduct, turning a blind eye or not asking the right questions may not fall within that small category of conduct, which is reprehensible by all civilized nations. Final question, Hal. How do you think the justices will rule? So there has been a trend about cutting down the alien tort statute to an infinitesimal size, much smaller than that contemplated by the first Congress that enacted the alien tort statute. And I predict that the Supreme Court will continue down that path and limit the alien tort statute to only a very small number of possible cases. I don't think that they will say that a corporation can never be a defendant. But I do think that they will say that this is the type of claim, this kind of negligent aiding and abetting, which would not fall within that small number of cases, which can be cognizable under the alien tort statute. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Krent, professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Non-citizens have been counted in every census since the first one in 1790. But President Trump wants to do something no president has ever done before exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count. And the Supreme Court heard arguments this week on the Trump administration's plans for the census for the second time in two years. Several of the justices were skeptical that Trump could exclude illegal immigrants from the count, with Justice Stephen Breyer summing up the reasons and Justice Amy Coney Barrett agreeing. It says persons. Uh, this started in 1820, you know, and they've always counted uh, uh, people who were here na- and not naturalized. And this has never happened before that you excluded the illegal aliens, and it has a lot of negative effects on the state. You know all those arguments, uh, and they're—I think—they're fairly strong ones. Justice, I mean, uh, what do you what do you want to say? They're persons, aren't they? But if if an undocumented uh, person has been in the country for, say, 20 years, you know, even if illegally, as you say, why would some person not have a, such a person not have a settled residence here? Some of the justices acknowledged the practical problem here. The administration has no plan for identifying the illegal immigrants it wants to exclude, something Justice Samuel Alito questioned Deputy Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall about. Can you not provide us with any more information than what you provided in your answer to the Chief Justice was that basically they're working on it? I I can provide you with a little bit more. I I don't know how satisfying it will be, but I think it is very unlikely that the Bureau will be able to identify all or substantially all illegal aliens present in the country. So anything like the 10 or 11 or 12 million numbers that are flying around. The administration is in a race to finish the count and submit the report to Congress before Joe Biden takes over the presidency. And many justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, suggested the court might take a wait-and-see attitude. Right now, as the questions have shown, we don't know what the secretary is going to do. We don't know what the president is going to do. We don't know how many aliens will be excluded. We don't know what the effect of that will be on apportionment. Um, All these questions would be... Uh, resolved if we wait until the apportionment takes place. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, was there one overriding focus of the justices' questions? Well, there are two overriding focuses of their questions. One is, why did they need to decide the case today? And I think there was a spoken issue and an unspoken issue. The spoken issue was, until the Trump administration actually determined which categories of undocumented people it wasn't going to count, and then that analysis could be undertaken by the courts, 
it wouldn't be appropriate to actually decide this issue. But the unspoken issue was, well, maybe by the time we get to all of this, Joe Biden will be president and this case will just implode under itself and we won't have to deal with this. And they didn't really want to talk about the second because it's kind of an unseemly thing for the Supreme Court to do. But they were very much pushing on why they needed to decide this case immediately. At one point, Justice Alito talked about the fact that there could be 10.5 million illegal immigrants or there could be 60,000. And he said he was frustrated with the posture of the case. The problem in this case was that the Trump administration, as always, has wanted to keep its options open and has not wanted to block itself by saying it was going to do one or another specific thing. So what the Trump administration's memo says is it seeks to exclude as many undocumented individuals as possible. So then the Solicitor General was pressed by the court. Does that mean DACA recipients? Does that mean everyone? Does that mean only people in immigration detention? Does that mean only people with final orders of removal? Does that mean people with criminal convictions or some amalgamation of people with criminal convictions, final orders of removal, and who are in immigration detention? And so that's why that number could be anywhere from 60,000 to 11 million. And so you had Justice Sotomayor saying, look, we have to treat this as it's 11 million because that's what the memo says, is we're going to try to exclude as many of the 11 million as possible. And the ACLU was arguing it doesn't really matter what the number is, because since the memo purports to want to exclude as many undocumented individuals as possible, then any subset that you take from that group, it's still a subset of an illegal memo, because the justices in general seem to agree with the concept that you could be undocumented in the United States and still be a resident for the purposes of the census. Several of the justices talked about the crunch of time here. Justice Kagan said, you're 30 days out. Well, the entirety of this case is based on the fact that there's currently an injunction that is preventing the Trump administration from transmitting a number of undocumented people that it seeks to exclude from the census. So they would like to be out from under that injunction. In other words, they want to be able to actually report a number of undocumented individuals and then have a litigation about whether that number of undocumented individuals should or shouldn't be counted in the census. That report was originally supposed to be due by the end of this year, and that was one of the first things that got established was they're going to miss their deadline. But there was some belief that still they needed to get out from under this injunction or they wouldn't be able to do any of this process. And there was a lot of frustration from all of the justices, both with regard to these timelines and with regard to the lack of specificity of who is going to be counted and for what purpose. Leon, the court is expediting this case. How fast do you think they can get a decision out? So the court doesn't actually need a lot of time to enter its decision. The court can literally enter a three-line decision today, simply saying that the case is not right for adjudication, and so bring your case back again once the apportionment is done. That could happen today. And if that happens today, then the president can actually, or the administration, can actually start preparing the number they want to prepare of who's excluded from the census. So that could happen. And 
in my view, that's actually the most likely event to happen. Not so much, again, in my view, because I think that's a satisfactory result and the justices want to not count undocumented people toward the census. But really, I think they're hopeful that if they can just keep punting this case, it might go away and that they won't actually have to grapple with the merits of this case. We'll see if one of the, I think there are four justices for grappling with the merits of the case. We'll see if one of the other justices wants to come in and join Justice Roberts and the three liberals with grappling with the merits of this case. But at the end of this day, I can foresee some compromise occurring where the idea is come back when a count is made and when that count is made, we'll, we'll address, even when we have to address it, whether that count should have excluded the people that are being excluded. Justice Amy Coney Barrett said that illegal aliens have never been excluded from the census. And then the acting solicitor general said, well, that's the other side's best argument. Does that indicate anything on her part? Well, absolutely. On the merits of the argument, unless a very, very small number of people are going to be excluded who you can say legitimately do not reside in the United States because they literally have no address. They're in a detention facility and they're scheduled to be removed. So that, that we're talking about a few thousand people. Unless we're talking about that, it's going to be almost impossible to get even this court to rule that a person isn't a person, which is what it would require for the purposes of the census. If you're a person and you have an address in the United States, you reside here in the United States for the purposes of the census. And so the question is, does the government really want to get to the merits of this case, or are they just trying to punt this issue to sort of give some faith saving for this administration, and then everybody can sort of move on with this issue for a subsequent administration? And I think that's what's going to be interesting in terms of cobbling together a majority is are there five justices that will just say, look, at the end of the day, let's just punt this issue. And I think that's the most likely scenario, but we'll have to wait and see. Would they punt it because, you know, it's not ripe? There's also a standing question here. I I don't think they're going to say that there's a lack of standing to bring this claim. But I do think what they'll say is that until that there is a, a, a... I mean, it's kind of a standing claim because you haven't been harmed yet, but it's more traditionally known as a rightness claim in the sense that we won't know what state, if any, has lost funding or apportionment until we have some idea of who was excluded or not excluded. And if at the end of the day, even if 12,000 people were excluded, but that didn't change anything, in terms of what states would get what funding and what states would get what uh, seats in Congress, then at the end, who's going to be able to come forward and bring a claim? Even an undocumented person, if they wanted to bring that claim, wouldn't be able to show how they were harmed. And so, yes, that is sort of a concept of standing, is you can't show exactly how you're harmed by not being counted in the census. And so that certainly does become a critical issue. And I think that will be the issue in which they will try to punt it. But again, 
I don't think they would punt it ordinarily if they thought that at the end of this, the Trump administration is going to exclude millions of people from the census. What their hope is that either this will lead to a decision to exclude so few people from the census that it doesn't end up actually changing anything so that there would be no lawsuit needed, or in the alternative, it at least gets you to a Biden administration and nothing ends up happening, period. At the very beginning of the argument, Chief Justice Roberts said, you know, this would be like unscrambling the eggs. And the Solicitor General said, well, we do that all the time. Explain what Chief Justice Roberts was talking about. Well, I think Chief Justice Roberts' concern was once you go down this route of excluding undocumented individuals, then you have two sets of litigation that go on. Number one, should you have excluded the category of people that have been excluded? And two, did you get the right number? And what he was concerned was he didn't want to have this second litigation of did you get the right number? Because that is a very difficult litigation. The government all the time ends up having to give five, six, seven different sets of statistics because they never get the right count in the first place. And who knows if they ever get the right count because it's just hard no matter what. It's not nefarious. It's just that the government turns out to be very bad at keeping statistics. And what Justice Roberts was saying is, why do we need to go down this route of having what I know is going to be very unseemly and inconvenient litigation on statistics that we know are going to be flawed if we can make a larger overarching decision that the government shouldn't be in this business of excluding anyone from the census, period. Did the Solicitor General say where they were going to get the numbers from for illegal? Well, I think he retreated to certain known knowns, to use a Donald Rumsfeld phrase, which is that we know how many people have orders of removal, and we know how many people are in immigration detention, and we know how many people are in immigration proceedings who have criminal convictions. And he's saying that worst-case scenario, at least that group should be allowed to be excluded. And then that wasn't really debated as, well, should that be the basis of a decision? Because the Trump administration hasn't said it's only going to be these three groups. And so that's the sort of problem in this case where the justices started getting frustrated is maybe if it had been limited to those three groups and they could actually zero in on litigation as to those three groups, you could have a discussion, is it proper or not? Now, the ACLU attorney did say even in some of those groups, people will eventually win and get out from under whatever charge is being charged onto them. And those people are, in fact, residents once they finish this process. And so you have to, even in this sense, count some portion and say, look, maybe 25% of these individuals win on average. And so you'd only count 75%, let's say, as undocumented. And so this becomes such a logistical nightmare that no matter how you're doing it, it's hard to say it's appropriate to count X number of people, but it becomes even worse in this case because the Trump administration wasn't even willing to give a category of people that it felt was appropriate to exclude as opposed to include 
rather than just saying, well, it could be all the undocumented or it could be some segment of the undocumented. And so the New York Times reported last week that Census Bureau officials have told the Commerce Department they can't produce the state population totals until after Trump leaves office. So then is all this just moot? Well, that's what the underlying current of these arguments are. That's what that's what the unsaid portion of today's argument was, is at the end of the day, do we really need to have this debate about whether you can count undocumented folks or not if at the end of the day this is all going to be moved because Biden will get to this before any damage is done? And I think it just depends where you come down on this. I think there are a number of justices, certainly uh, uh, Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan, who definitely would have wanted and would want just to get a president on record saying this is egregious stuff and it shouldn't happen in this country and we should count people and people are people, end of story. But I just don't know where that's going to fall with the other six justices in this court. And I can just really see them wanting to find some off-ramp that does the least amount of damage uh, possible. And so the off-ramp might be what the D.C. three-judge panel did. Correct. The off-ramp would be to say, come back to us when there is an exact number of people excluded for exact reasons, and then we can have that debate about whether somebody was harmed and whether anybody lost seats or funding because of this. But for now, we don't know, and so now is not the time to be having this discussion at the courts because we don't know if anyone's actually been harmed yet. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. You can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to catch the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.